Please be seated. So our gospel lesson, where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, uh, actually sets the tone for the entire season of Lent that we've just entered as a church. 40 days of preparation marked by fasting and prayerful repentance. Uh, the idea being that during the season, we're able to return to the Lord together, intentionally, to retrace the story of redemption once again, preparing ourselves to make our own wilderness journey through Lent, a pilgrimage to and through Jerusalem during Holy Week, and finally, to hopefully be amazed again at the joy of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Our gospel lesson even sets the tone for the, the unique approach we're taking to Lent this year, uh, when Jesus is being, is being tempted to fill his own belly. After his long fast, he looks back to Deuteronomy 8. Uh, the scene when God fed wandering Israel in the wilderness with manna, teaching his people that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we're called, especially in the midst of fasting from lesser things, to feed on, to feast on the very word of God. And that's why we're going to do something we don't often do as a church, uh, we're going to ignore most of the assigned readings during Lent. Uh, you'll hear the gospel lessons. We'll keep that cycle going. But we are going to actually slow down and drill down on one small book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Ruth. And we'll look at it on Sundays in our sermon series. Uh, there's a devotional booklet you can pick up if you'd like to go through that. I think there's 27 entries. You've got 40 days in Lent. So you've got a few mulligans in there. No worries. Um, and our community groups will be going through Ruth as well in community. So we're going to really spend time uh, with this amazing little book. And so as we come to this book, would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As I said, we're going to be spending Lent journeying through the book of Ruth. And uh, this is a remarkable uh, book of the Old Testament. Um, it's small enough that we can actually get our head around it by spending a month with it. Um, but it's detailed enough that it merits slowing down. We could spend 8, 12, 16 weeks going through this remarkable uh, book. Th this book will help us, my hope would be, uh, during this season to attend to generosity, one of the three traditional spiritual disciplines of Lent, uh, but also to pay attention to God's work in our lives. Uh, God's work in Ruth is remarkable because Ruth is not a book uh, filled with burning bushes, and thus saith the Lord's. Instead, God's providence works gently, subtly. It's in the background, uh, guiding this story, uh, guiding the men and women we encounter, guiding the decisions they make. And I would just submit that's how most of us experience the Lord as well. Uh, not burning bushes, not audible uh, voices from heaven like at the baptism of Jesus, but his providence working gently and subtly, uh, always working, but guiding us, guiding the decisions we make, the folks who are around us. And the other thing that's interesting is that Ruth, by the end of chapter one, you'll see that the book of Ruth has 
uh, come through a season, an incredibly difficult season of famine and loss and grief. And we see how just in Ruth 2 through 4, this one little family moves forward after a horrific season uh, in their lives personally and in the lives of the nation. Um, and I thought, you know what? It's been a kind of a crazy couple years. And it feels like we're on that threshold. There's a glimmer of hope. We're just starting to come out of things. How do we do that? How does a family move forward out of this really hard season? I think Ruth uh, has a lot to teach us and show us um, about the path forward. Um, Ruth as a book is four weeks, or it's four chapters, and we have four weeks, four Sundays, so you can guess how we're going to break it up. <laughs> Chapter a week. Um, this week, we're going to focus on Naomi. Uh, we're going to introduce you to Naomi. We're going to talk about her uh, desolation that she experienced. Uh, the very last Sunday, the fourth Sunday, we're going to look at a, a character who doesn't get a lot of time in this book, but a character named Ovid, a baby. And we see the joy of restoration in chapter four. And between that, we'll look at this fascinating interplay uh, and story between Ruth and Boaz um, in chapters two and three. So first, uh, let's talk about the first five verses uh, when nothing is going right. And you'll notice that this is a succinct uh, literary masterpiece. Uh, the opening verse alone tells an entire story of famine and anxiety. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There's a lot going on on that time stamp, that introduction. Ruth knows how to write an opening sentence to hook your attention. It's like, have you ever seen a television show, a pilot, where the point of a pilot is just to intrigue you? That's what Ruth's doing here. And really, that's what we hope to do this morning, is just intrigue you with this book. But it says that all this is happening in the days when the judges ruled. In other words, there's no king uh, in Israel. Uh, if you read the book of Judges, it's terrible. Uh, the, the time of the judges is a time of hardship and calamity. There's a cycle of sin and terrible leaders. There's national apostasy and unrest. There's social isolation and trauma and abuse. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, sums up the season this way. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a caption. Things were so difficult and confusing at a broader cultural and national level, each person was left rudderless just to try and make a decision and look out for themselves. Again, I think we can probably relate more to this than at any time in my known memory. Um, with these years of a global pandemic, social unrest, vigorous needed cultural discussions, political division, and now open warfare. It's like the 80s have returned. What's it like to be one family, just trying to make your way when the world is on fire and out of alignment. In Ruth, the problems weren't just out there. They come home to this, this family. That There's a famine in the land. And we meet a man from Bethlehem in Judah. And any uh, Christian knows that's an important place, right? Bethlehem in Judah. Well, this man, Elimelech, his name actually means God is my king. Well, he takes his family 
his wife and his two sons to Moab. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word Moab, but this is an ancient enemy of God's people. Um, If you look back in Genesis at the start of Moab, uh, the origins are shrouded in scandal and sin. Uh, This is when uh, those ladies tricked Lot into laying with them. And this man's name is Elimelech. He's married to Naomi. Names are important in this story. Um, And they do have these two boys. Uh, One of my conversation partners, as we've kind of prepared for this series, has been an Old Testament scholar named Marion Ann Taylor. Uh, She's a brilliant Old Testament professor at Wycliffe College in Toronto. Um, And what's really fun is she actually uh, looks at the long history of how uh, female scholars and Christians have interpreted this book. Um, There's some unique things that I just don't naturally see when I come to the book of Ruth, and she can teach me uh, and can teach us together. Um, But she says, if you look at Elimelech's decision to leave the promised land, to sojourn in Moab, it suggests uh, desperation and perhaps a lack of faith. That's a telling thing. Everything's going wrong, and so this man slips into survival mode. Rather than waiting on the Lord, he's going to force things himself. And honestly, I would give him a harder time if I didn't completely understand that impulse and that temptation. Things are not going well. I'm going to try to make it better, fix it, even if the solution might be worse than the problem. And of course, some of this is speculation because we don't really get to know Elimelech. Elimelech, we hardly knew you because in verse 3, he dies. We don't know what he dies from. He leaves Naomi with her two sons, and these boys marry Moabite women. That's probably a mixed bag for Naomi. She's glad on the one hand that her sons are married, that there might be a future for the family. But on the other hand, these are Moabite women. Sketchy. Not probably her preferred uh, eligible spouses for her boys. And we hear that Her sons live with these women for 10 years. And if you're astute to read between the lines, after 10 years, you should start looking around for grandkids for Naomi. Uh, That's the natural way of things. And the fact that that's not happened gives us some questions early on. How is this family going to continue? Is this family going to continue with everything going wrong? But at least you can imagine it's, it's relatively stable for her, right? 10 years where at least her boys are there, they're married. Uh, Maybe she's able to process the grief from her husband's death, but then they die as well. Both the boys die. Imagine this poor lady. She's living in a disastrous time when the judges ruled, a time of national sin and upheaval. She had lived through a famine. She had immigrated to the land of her enemies. She'd lost her husband. Now she's lost her two sons. And as much as that is grief upon grief and loss upon loss, I don't know that we understand how much this leaves her vulnerable. Without a family, without her boys, without offspring, without a husband, she has no hope of financial or relational or familial security in this time. If being a widow with two grown sons was bad, imagine being a widow who had lost your boys. 
the hits keep coming for Naomi. And she's just left with her two pagan daughters-in-law. And I don't know, even the best daughters-in-law have an interesting relationship with their mother-in-law, right? I mean, that's like there's whole scores of jokes about it. And those women had just become widows. So they're reeling as well. Ruth, I would say, is a wilderness story of desolation and loss and trauma here in five verses. In verse six, we finally get a glimmer of hope, some potentially good news. We hear the famine had finally ended. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so Naomi decides to return home. It's a good impulse, right? When nothing's going right, everything's gone wrong, go home. And the word uh, for going home is return. It's a huge Hebrew word, shuv, it's the Hebrew word. It's, it's, you can translate it eight different ways. Um, and on the one sense, it means to return, to go back. It's also the word we have time and time again for repentance, for turning and turning around. There's something about returning home that it's, it's, some re- uh, it's repentance uh, for Ruth. Uh, or for Naomi as well. And I wasn't sure there was a solid connection between Lent as a season and Ruth as a book until I realized this entire thing is about shuv, about returning and repenting. Because that's what we do during Lent. We head home. We return to the Lord. We, like the prodigal and the prodigal son of Luke 15, we go back because nothing's gone right. Naomi's gonna go home and she says, hey, Daughters-in-law, you still have a future here. You're from Moab. Um, Why don't you stay here? I'll go home. Uh, You can marry. I don't have any more sons for you. You have no prospects in Israel. Stay here. Um, And it's actually interesting. She tells them to return to their mother's house. Uh, Just this little flourish of details in this text. Um, That's a curious turn of phrase in a very patriarchal society. Um, throughout the Old Testament, we, we rarely hear of a mother's house. We hear of the father's house. Even the prodigal returns to their father's house. But she's saying, no, you have a, a mother's home. Ellen Davis, another remarkable uh, scholar, says that in the context of this book, just that little unusual term, mother's house, quietly marks the fact that we're in the sphere of women. And the power that they wielded here in this ancient society, power that would prove to be world-shaping, even though in a traditional society such as Israel, the exercise of that power was less publicly visible than that of men, but it was there. It was powerful. She says, go back to your mother's house. Your mother can figure things out. Find a way forward for you. Uh, She wishes them well, realizes she has nothing further to offer them. And I think, you know, she's like, let's just cut our losses and go home. That's what she's trying to do. And Orpah, one of the sisters, takes her up on it. Who can blame her? She's, I mean, she's doing what's expected. Naomi releases her. Orpah returns to her people. Um, there are some, like, legendary traditions that really look down on Orpah for this decision and actually have her as the mother of Goliath, um, which is just kind of interesting. Uh, but Ruth, what does Ruth do? It says Ruth clung to her. Clung. That, that's the same verb in Genesis of the covenant faithfulness in a proper marriage. When it says a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, clung, cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a remarkable over and above commitment 
that we see from Ruth. It's unexpected and startling, and it surprises Naomi. And Naomi actually doesn't greet it with much, fine, okay, she's made her mind up, let's go. You see that from Naomi, right? So let's look at the return home, the bitter return home, verses 19 through 22. We don't learn much about their journey back, uh, but their homecoming is not joyous. It's noteworthy. The whole town comes out, and we hear Naomi's summary of how she feels about all that has happened. Verse 20, do not call me Naomi. I have a footnote in, in my Bible. It says that means pleasant. Call me Mara. Footnote again, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She's angry. She's bitter. And rightly so. After all that has happened to her, uh, there are parallels in the scriptures. Many would say this is a, a female Job we see here with Naomi. Um, church tradition has picked up on this. And just if you heard the word uh, Mara, what's it sound like? Mary. And so traditionally in st the Stations of the Cross, the devotional exercise on the death of Jesus, you'll find his mother, Mary. Uh, standing along the way, standing at the foot of the cross. And most traditional stations will put this in her mouth. Mary, the mother of Jesus, saying, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord has dealt most bitterly with me at the death of her son. It's a powerful, poignant statement. Uh, John Goldingay, who's an Old Testament scholar, he's an Anglican, he points out that it's interesting uh, because if you listen to Naomi, unlike Job or maybe the psalmist, when they're angry and bitter, what do they do? They complain to God in prayer. But Naomi's not there yet. She's simply ready to talk about what has happened. She's talking about God rather than to God. And that resonates with me. I, I, as a pastor, I've seen people experience terrible things. Uh, deep grief and trauma and hurt just that they're no longer even able to pray yet. But they do need to talk about it as a first step. Here's what's happened. Let's start unpacking this. Um, when people have experienced this level of trauma, they're hurt or they're angry or they're bitter, I just thought, man, how do we respond to that as a church family? Like, would you want Naomi in your community group? I don't know. Might be a downer. Might not be great. And I would suggest Ruth might show us a, a way forward. Because Ruth has this over and above commitment to Naomi. She lets her know, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. There's a ministry of presence, of walking alongside Naomi. And in the church, I think we struggle with that. We struggle with a full range of emotions or, or sitting alongside people in their pain and grief. But the scriptures are never embarrassed by that. And if you have those feelings, a season like Lent is one where we can actually explore that a little bit. Uh, there's, there's a bright sadness to Lent. There's a melancholy to Lent. Um, some actually would say that Lent 2020 is still going. And we're landing in Lent 2022. Marion Ann Taylor, 
again, points out that her expressions of, of anger and bitterness uh, don't point to a lack of faith, but to the importance of lament and protest and questioning in the Christian life. Laments are not failures of faith. They embody it. And we're invited to cry out to God from the depths of our sorrow and pain, believing that God will hear us, that Jesus is with us even as we suffer, and that God's spirit groans on our behalf when the pain is unbearable. No one pulls the newly named Mara aside and tells her to get over it. Things aren't really that bad. Or even God has a plan. Though the entire book of Ruth will eventually testify to that, she's not ready to hear it. In that moment, it's not helpful. And again, we see wisdom from God that applies to our lives today as a community, but it, it might be more personal. Uh, maybe as you read this, you don't read it as, how do I respond to those who have gone through this? You're like, man, that's me. Like, I feel bitter. I feel angry. I don't like the lot I've gotten. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Maybe everything happening in our culture and our world has pushed you past the brink. Maybe personal illness or need or family stress or loneliness has been unbearable. Um, I think just in the last month or two, we've heard of three um, pretty bad car wrecks in our community. Um, just you're going along in life and out of nowhere, someone sideswipes your world or rear-ends you and things change. Maybe disappointment or betrayal by church or family or friends has left you reeling. That political conversation at Thanksgiving that just went sideways and never came back around. Well, one, I would say we're glad that you're here. And like Naomi turned Mara, maybe it's just, just enough for now to be honest and to be present, to return and show up. And our prayer is that we would see a model of how to respond again in Ruth who journeys with her as they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. A little light, a little glimmer of hope again. What will be next for these women after all they've been through? Do they have a future? Do they have a family? Can things be made right? How could you have redemption and restoration after such desolation and loss? How will Naomi, newly named Mara, respond? Will she turn away from the Lord? Has God abandoned her? I would say she's in the midst of figuring out what's next. She's in that uncomfortable, liminal space of how do I move forward? Which again, a lot of us find ourselves in. But we're kind of, it looks like finishing one chapter and we feel like it's moving, but we don't know what, what that holds. It's uneasy, it makes us ancients. And again, whether you personally have been experiencing suffering and loss or just a general disruption, we're trying to figure out, hey, well, how do we move forward when things have fallen apart? And we're asking if our experience will push us towards uh, long-term bitterness. Or can we find healing? Uh, by faith, can we look for what is next even in light of all that has gone wrong? What does it mean to be on the threshold at the beginning of the barley harvest? after such a long time of famine and grief and loss. I just wonder, do we have an imagination for what God could do next? I wonder if Naomi and Ruth have an imagination for how God could work in their lives 
And as I look at our church, I wonder, hey, do we have an imagination? What God could do in and through this place and in and through the people uh, he's drawing. And I think Lent is the perfect season to slow down, take our time, and wrestle with these questions together. Uh, a friend of mine who's a priest in Chicago wrote a book on Lent. He said, Lent is an ancient pilgrimage that the Lord uses to recapture our imagination of and renew our participation in the greatest story ever told. That's the invitation. To look at this small story, this pivotal story in the Old Testament, see how it fits in the great story of redemption, then ask the Lord to recapture our imagination, renew our participation in it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.